To all of our listeners out there, I just want to let you know, Hannah and I read every single review of our show. It's true. And there's one review left by a user called Geek Me, and I look at it probably once a week. Wait, which one is that? It says here, I'll read it. It says, quote, I love the work that you guys do and have learned a lot, but it's become increasingly obvious that the way it's supposed to work is just window dressing or talking a good game compared to how things really get done. Mm. You've seen that one, right? Yeah. That review haunts me. <laughs> it sits like the raven and stares at me when you and I talk about executive orders or declaring war. Almost any topic. Because we've got the rules for how our government works. It's in the tagline for our show. And then there's the way those rules are bent. And I fear that today's episode has the potential to make geek me really frustrated. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Cappadice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we're talking about committees, congressional committees, what they do, why we have them, and who gets to be on them. If you glean one thing from this episode, it should be committees are super important. Woodrow Wilson, before he was president, once said, quote, Congress in session is Congress on public exhibition, whilst Congress in its committee rooms is Congress at work. And then he went on to say, I do not know how better to describe our form of government in a single phrase than calling it a government by the chairman of the standing committees of Congress. And Hannah, let's just ditch the world of cynicism for a hot second and embrace pure, unbridled optimism. I'm not, I'm not a cynical person. We're not cynical people talking about government. What do members of Congress want? You know him. You love him. At least I do. Dan Casino, professor of government and politics at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Before we talk about what committees are, I want to start with a much broader question. Why do people even enter politics? We assume everyone in government has something they're trying to do. They've got policy they're trying to push. There's something that they believe is good for our country they're trying to get done. Cool. So that's your, that's your biggest need. But how do you get that? Well, first you need to get power. Once you get power, then you can do that. So you have to get power, and the power will get you to your policy goals. Well, how do you get power? Well, you have to get reelected, right? If you don't get reelected, you're never going to be able to do anything. If you're not able to do anything, you don't get any power, you're not going to be able to actually get your policy goals done. So members of Congress, we can argue, are single-minded, rational seekers of re-election, because re-election will get them towards all their other goals. Being on a good committee helps you get re-elected. Wait, how does that help you get re-elected? That is something I hope to convey by the end of the show, Hannah. So what I want to do is, you know, we talk about stuff and then we do a break and we ask people to sign up for our newsletter and then we say, okay, we're back. I do. Yeah. What I'd like to do for the first half of the show is to hold on to this good faith civics 101 breakdown of committees. And then in the second half, I'm going to talk about money, lobbyists, and a secret point system. A secret point system? Yeah. So let's start at the very beginning. Almost every bill that is written in Congress is referred to a relevant committee. There are 20 permanent standing committees in the House, 16 in the Senate, and four joint committees, which have members from both the House and the Senate. Each committee has a chair. Very important role. The chair of a committee always belongs to the party that controls that chamber of Congress. For example, as of this recording, February 2022, the Democratic Party controls both the House and the Senate, meaning all committee chairs are Democrats. 
And each committee has subcommittees. Those are smaller committees that work in one specific subset of the larger committee. And each of those has a chair. And as to what these committees do, here is Leah Rosensteel, professor of political science at Vanderbilt University. Broadly speaking, right, of course, Congress writes and enacts legislation, but it's a huge body and it's really hard to have, um, in the case of the Senate, a hundred people all agreeing, you know, on what should go in a bill. And even when you're writing the initial bill, what to do, it also really doesn't make sense to have a hundred people um, all try to become experts on education policy or agriculture policy. Right. So the idea of congressional committees is just a simple division of labor where you have committees that typically have a um, jurisdiction, specific policy areas they're responsible for. They often do a lot of the drafting of initial legislation. Bills then pass through committee before getting enacted by the chamber. So the people on these committees do know a little more than the average bear about specific topics. Yeah, and you often get people serving on committees from states that really care about those topics. There's some evidence in political science that the committees that you choose to serve on reflect the needs of your constituents. So if you look, for example, at the um, Senate Agriculture Committee, right, that's a committee that typically is made up of members who represent states that have more farming industry, right, that are more rural. And that sort of makes sense. Why would you want to serve on the Senate Agriculture Committee? Because your constituents right, care about those types of issues. Hannah, name a state that comes to mind if I say something like cattle farming. I don't know, maybe Nebraska? Yeah, Congressman Don Bacon from Nebraska's 2nd District. He serves on the Subcommittee on Livestock and Foreign Agriculture. He's also on three other subcommittees. Oh, you can be on more than one subcommittee. Oh, yeah, the House has over 100 subcommittees, so most members are on at least two. All right, bills are proposed in both chambers, but who decides which committee those bills go to? All right, let's do a quick How a Bill Becomes a Law recap. Listen to that full episode, by the way, folks. First step, a bill is proposed. You propose a bill. You put that bill in the hopper, right? The Now, often it's a physical hopper in the state of Arizona. It's actually, they have a little uh, plastic frog on top of it because it's, it's a hopper, right? It hops. So you put that bill in there. The bill then goes to the speaker. The speaker then assigns that bill to go to a particular committee. Now, if they want to, they can assign it to more than one committee. But that's seen as a slight against the two committees because it means you don't trust either of these committees. Technically, the Speaker of the House determines which committee or committees get the bill. And in the Senate, it's the presiding officer. But most of the time, that decision is made by the House or Senate parliamentarian. That is a job that will get its own episode soon. But in brief, it's a nonpartisan member of Congress who advises everyone else on rules and procedures. So it gets referred to committee. The committee chair then gets that bill. And about 9% of the time, they just ignore it. They just pay no attention to it. They throw it out. They, you know, they turn to kindling, whatever. They pay no attention to it whatsoever. Now, this is the main thing that I knew about committees, that it is the place that bills go to die. It's a statistic I never tire of repeating, and it varies slightly Congress to Congress, but usually about 2 to 4% of proposed bills become laws. 90% of proposed bills die in committee. This means that chairs of committees and subcommittees have enormous amounts of power. That is, if I'm chairing a committee and I don't like a bill, I just ignore it and it's dead. There's nothing anyone can do about it. I just don't report the, com- the bill out. If a bill is in committee and the chair refuses to report it out, as in bring it to the floor for a vote, 
Is there no way that Congress can force it out? There is, and we've mentioned it in other episodes. It's called a discharge petition, but it is exceptionally rare. Dan said more often, if there's a desire for a bill to make it out of committee, the Speaker of the House just says to the committee chair, come on, pal, and it comes out. Let's assume then that we've got a rare bill that is not ignored by the chair. What happens in the committee chambers with one of those bills? Well, it sounds like this. Okay. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, let me just uh, reiterate the fact that this bill does not address the issue of wild horses. It deals only with domestic horses slaughtered for human consumption. Uh, clerk will call the roll. Mr. Adderholt. Mr. Adderholt, no. Mr. Aguilar. Mr. Aguilar, aye. Mr. Amaday, Mr. Amaday, no. Mr. Bishop, Mr. Bishop, yes. Mr. Calvert. That is a snip from a five-hour video of the House Appropriations Committee marking up a bill uh, from July of 2017. If they want to move the bill forward, they might consider holding some hearings where they bring in um, different people, right, experts, stakeholders to talk about the issue. Then the committee can do what's called a markup. The committee actually meets and they go through and they offer amendments to the bill and mark it up and make changes. Sometimes if it's a good bill, they look at it and go, okay, there's an idea here we could take. And they either rewrite the entire bill or they take elements of it and add it to another bill they're going to do anyway. And this is what the markup process is. In the committees and Senate, subcommittees in the House, they actually totally rewrite the bill based on their expertise, what they're hearing from lobbyists, what they're hearing from the executive branch. They then vote on that marked up bill. And if it passes, right, if it gets a majority of committee members, then they refer it to the floor and then um, it gets considered and can get passed, right? And then if it passes both chambers and gets signed by the president, it becomes law. Now, this is pretty clear cut to me. Committees are groups of people in the House and Senate with specific areas of interest and expertise who debate, study, alter, and most often ignore proposed legislation. Bingo a dingo. I'm not going to actually say bingo a dingo. I thought it was funny at the time. It seems like serving on a committee is a lot of work. Dan said it gives you power, but how? Oh, okay. Okay, I think we've got the schoolhouse rock portion all settled here, Hannah. So let's take a quick break and jump into the dark waters of who really gets to be on committees and why serving on one can be the most important thing you do in your political career. You're listening to Civics 101. We are talking about committees. But before we get back to it, I want to let listeners know that they might like our newsletter, Extra Credit. It comes out twice a month, and Nick assures me that he will provide a list of least desirable to most desirable committees in our next issue. You can subscribe at the top of our website, civics101podcast.org. Okay, so as promised, Nick, we're back to it. We're talking committees Lay it on me. Who gets to be on these committees and why does that matter? I'll start with a brief, brief history. There were small select committees in the late 1800s in America. But in short, our current committee structure is pretty modern. There was a big legislative reorganization in 1946 in response to what opponents of Franklin Roosevelt felt was his overreach of presidential power. And to comprehend committees, Dan Casino told me there is a term we should learn called information asymmetry. 
So this is a concept from economics that I think is really important for people to understand when it comes to Congress. So information asymmetry is the problem that arises when the person I'm hiring to do something knows more than I do. So I take my car to the auto shop. If I am dealing with a dishonest auto mechanic, they can say, you know, your frambulator is completely shot. And as a white guy in his 40s, I'm going to go, oh yeah, no, I thought it might be the frambulator. You're right. That's how much they got to cost to fix my frambulator. Because they know more than I do, there's an information asymmetry. So they can take advantage of me. So how do I stop that? Well, I can get a second opinion, right? I can learn about these things. The problem Congress faced was the government had gotten so complex, was doing so many things that they didn't know. Congress, leaders in Congress didn't know everything the government was doing. They didn't know what the president was up to. President Roosevelt signed over 3,700 executive orders. Congress just didn't know what he was up to. There were so many orders and bills and agencies that Republican members in Congress in 1946 said enough. And they created the committee system that resembles what we have today. A system that divides the labor of understanding what Congress is doing. All right, so how do we pick who gets to be on these committees? Here's Leah Rosenstiel again. It used to be the case that committee chairs were determined solely based on seniority. So if you've been in Congress for a long time, you get to be the committee chair, provided they're in the majority party. But here's the problem with that seniority system, Hannah. Democrats controlled the House for a solid 40-year stretch starting in 1955. Did you know that? 40 years. I didn't. And the members of Congress who kept getting reelected and therefore always had seniority were from this group known as Southern Democrats or Dixiecrats. This is a group that was conservative, pro-segregation, anti-civil rights legislation, and did not share policy positions with the rest of the Democratic Party. So the seniority system was abandoned. A new system has been implemented to choose who goes on what committee. And this is important because some committees are more desirable than others to be on. So at the high end, you know, in the House, you're going to have four what we call AAA committees, these committees that everyone wants to be on. And so that's you know, ways and means, so taxes, appropriations, spending said taxes, energy and commerce, because, you know, oil companies and all that, and financial services. So those are your AAA committees everyone wants to be on, and they're a scarce resource. Not everyone gets to be on those committees. The next level down is committees that are pretty good, right? Like uh, like agriculture, especially if you represent a state with a lot of farms. The House Armed Services Committee is pretty great, they say. Uh, you can work on bills that use defense spending, and you can build a military base in your state. And then, imagine you really upset some people. Boy, they don't want you anywhere near anything important. You're going to be on, and yes, in the year of our Lord 2022, we still call it this, Indian Affairs. People don't really want to be on that committee. Not a lot of money, not really a lot you can do in many districts. By the way, both Dan and Leah said that the problematically named Committee on Indian Affairs is less desirable because it is underfunded, limited in terms of action, and sees very little interest from lobbying groups. And below that, at the very bottom of the desirability list, are the Joint Committees. These are committees that are split between the House and the Senate. So the Joint Committees mostly exist as a way to hold on to staff members. And so this is going to be things like uh, the Economic Committee, the Joint Committee, the Joint Economic Committee, and the Joint Taxation Committee. And Hannah, there are joint committees that I don't think you've even heard of. I know it sounds like it'd be fun to be on the Library Committee. It is not fun to be on the Library Committee. But there is a Library Committee, and there is a Printing Committee to deal with the actual printing of uh, laws. 
come on. There's a printing committee. There is, chaired by none other than former presidential candidate, Senator Amy Klobuchar. I now recognize uh, the vice chair. I know that uh, Zoe can't be there, but maybe we could submit. Is this... Okay, we'll submit her remarks for the record. That honestly is the only video I could find of a meeting of the Joint Committee on Printing, uh, a meeting that lasted four minutes. <laughs> the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. The rules of the committee have, are adopted. And Senator Worker, you just voted to abolish the filibuster. No, I'm kidding. That's, that is not true. That was, please strike that. And finally, there are special committees tied to investigations and ethics, and those aren't terribly desirable because unless you think it's going to get you good media attention, you don't want to be in charge of getting your fellow members of Congress in trouble. Okay, back to those super desirable committees, though. What is it that makes them so special? The reason we call them AAA is because so many people care about them. There's big money behind them. People are going to want to lobby you. They're going to want to talk to you. And you can charge them a lot of money for access to you. Now, there's very little evidence that members of Congress actually change their votes based on what they hear from lobbyists. But what lobbyists can do is put things on your agenda. And so this is what lobbyists are mostly paying for. Lobby, when lobbyists are paying a lot of money, it's not bribes. It is paying for access, right? I'm going to be able to pigeonhole you and talk to you. And that's going to take a $5,000 plate dinner, but I'm going to be seated next to you. And now I can talk to you and tell you about this one little thing I'm worried about. And that puts it on your radar. I know Dan said... It's not bribery, it's paying for access. But it just sounds like a lot of bribery, Nick. I should first say that, of course, bribery is illegal in the United States, right? So that's um, not something that we hope lobbyists are engaging in, right? There are some bribery cases, but, right, that is illegal. But there is absolutely evidence that members of key committees do get lobbied more. Right? If you're trying to lobby on an issue and you know that the committee has power over the issue, you should, of course, be lobbying the committee chair and the other committee members. So if you are on one of these AAA committees, you wind up having a lot more access to lobbyists who will pay a lot of money to get in good with you. So that means you can raise a lot of money, which means you can get reelected, which means you can get power, which means you can get policy. It makes you look good when you're a chair of a committee that passes a popular piece of legislation. You can then give campaign speeches and say, I am the one who got this bill through that gave jobs to thousands of folks in Wisconsin. You're just seen as an effective politician if you do that. And one more thing I'll add about these coveted committees. If you had been on one, if you had been a chair, when your career in Congress is over, you can then say, you know what? I know a lot of people who still serve on that committee. And I know a lot about how that committee works. Maybe I could become one of those lobbyists. And they often do. It's referred to as Washington's revolving door of lobbying. And as an example, Billy Towson, a former chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, which deals with promotional standards for drug companies, interestingly enough, uh, he became a lobbyist for pharmaceutical companies and made $19.3 million in four years. Nick, if it's not seniority anymore, who does get to be on these committees? Both parties have what's called a steering committee, which chooses where people go. The steering committee answers directly to the speaker, and they're going to put people on these committees. People actually apply, say which committee they want to get onto, and the steering committee will entertain those, but it really is up to the speaker who gets on which committees. And the way you do it is in the Democrats, you have a point system. Oh, you weren't joking about the point system. I wasn't. It's a literal point system. Doing certain actions for your party gets you points. 
Uh, hosting a fundraiser that gets over $15,000 to the DCCC gets you five points. Traveling to a district to campaign to flip it from red to blue gets you three points, and so on. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has the most points at 279, and lots of folks had zero points. They've gamified getting on committees and getting favors from leadership. So the big thing that gets you points is giving lots of money to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. So the more money you give to the DCCC, or in the case of Republicans, the uh, Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, the more points you get. Now, Republicans, as far as we know, these are all, these things are all, by the way, secret. They don't tell you this. We just get leaks occasionally. So we actually have uh, leaks from the Democrats in 2019 detailing their entire point system. Uh, Republicans, we think, is similar, but we don't actually have the full leaks from them. And how much money are we talking here? Well, uh, I encourage listeners to read the full member dues report that was leaked on August of 2019. I'm going to put a link to it on the episode page of our website, civics101podcast.org. But members of those AAA committees were expected to pay $600,000 a year. What? While we don't have a due sheet for the National Republican Congressional Committee, a report from the Brookings Institute in 2017 laid out that it was very similar. One former Republican House rep was quoted as saying, every time you walk into an NRCC meeting, a giant gosh darn tally sheet is on prominent display that lists your name and how much you've given or haven't. It's a huge wall of shame. End quote. Do they pay these dues from like their personal bank accounts? I don't get it. Like, where does this money come from? Yeah, no way. Uh, Dan said Washington is a lot like Broadway. You never put your own money on the show. What you do is you transfer money from your campaign funds to the NRCC or DCCC, or you just hold a fundraiser and say, don't put my name on the check, but the campaign committee on the checks instead. So what happens if a member of Congress does not pay their committee dues? That means that when it comes to decide who's going to move up into one of these scarce spots that everyone wants, well, if you haven't paid your dues, it's not going to happen to you. You're not going to move up in the leadership ranks. Notably, one member of the House has, in recent years, openly refused to pay her dues to the DCCC. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is infuriating the Democrat establishment by refusing to pay party dues while bankrolling left-wing challengers to the party establishment. Member of Congress Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez refused to even register with the DCCC, and she tweeted, quote, I give quite a bit to fellow Dems. We fundraised over 300000 for others, more than my dues. But as to how this action will affect her political career, we have absolutely no idea. All right, Geek Me, how you feeling? Civics 101 at NHPR.org, Geek Me. Drop us a line. That's committees, folks, the place where, as Wilson said, Congress is at work. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you. Thank you. Our staff includes Christina Phillips and Jackie Fulton. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer and only eats her salad with a fork. Music in this episode by Jesse Gallagher, Junior85, Proletur, Diala, Divkid, Scott Gratton, Corey Gray, Kevin McLeod, and the GOAT, Chris Zabriskie. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Oh, you weren't joy. Oh, you weren't joking about the point system. <laughs> <laughs> Joykin. <laughs>
hey, listen, you're really joking. <laughs> no one would even say that. <laughs> Not even the newsiest newsy would say joking. <laughs>